Thanks, Nathaniel. Yep, uh, gardening is happening with the sunshine. I cut my lawn for the first time this year, yesterday. Always a big moment in every year. First time you get the lawnmower out, enjoyed doing that. Didn't really need it, but just made me feel happy. Um, right, we are in part nine of our series in Ephesians, finishing next Sunday. Next Sunday, we're in at the last part of this Ephesians series. And this uh, message this morning is titled A Bigger Family, and we're in Ephesians 5, the second half of Ephesians 5 through to the first half of Ephesians chapter 6. And this is one of those passages in the Bible which is often thought of as being a difficult passage, whereas actually I think it's a wonderful passage. And I'm going to pick up from verse 14, which is where Richard finished last Sunday, and go from there. Ephesians 5, 14. Wake up, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, most likely, Paul here is taking a scripture from the prophecy of Isaiah. If you're doing community Bible reading with us, you'll have read this a couple of weeks ago. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. And we think that the early church took that verse from Isaiah and uh, turned it into Christian worship and used this phrase, wake up our sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. We think they used it as a hymn, especially at baptisms. And I think we should do that. I don't know why we've never done this. It's so amazing. Uh, it'd be great to have some baptisms soon. Maybe Easter Sunday we could have some baptisms. That'd be something to look for, wouldn't it? Pray for, plan for. But as somebody is coming out of the water for the congregation to say together, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. It's just a brilliant baptismal moment. The point is that Christians are alive. And of course, that moment of baptism coming out of the water is what symbolizes and represents our new life in Christ. And the point that Paul is making is, if you're a Christian, you're alive. So live like you're alive. And what does it look like to live as if you're alive? And that's where the passage goes next. Verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be very careful then how you live. More literally, that would be translated as watch carefully how you walk. Or more colloquially, watch your step, is what Paul is saying. Watch your step. Make the most of every opportunity. Watch your step. Make the most of your time. Understand that the days are evil. They are. There's all kinds of evidence of evil around us. You don't have to look far to see evidence of evil. So as a Christian who's alive, don't get hoodwinked by the ways of the world. Don't just go with the flow. Don't just do what everybody else is doing. Watch your step and be filled with the Spirit. And the sense here in what Paul says about being filled with the Spirit is a sense of being continually, be continually filled with the Spirit, like a a ship trimming its sails to the wind. Uh, yesterday afternoon, we went down to Paul Quay, along with many thousands of other people. It felt like a, a normal Saturday afternoon. And uh, Pip Hare's boat is down there. Pip Hare 
recently won the Vendée Globe Round the World race, an extraordinary achievement. A solo race, no stops, just do it in one go. I think it was 95 days it took her first woman to win the race, an extraordinary achievement. And her yacht is at Pool Quay. Now, I imagine for those 95 days, well, I don't imagine, you know, she was trimming her sails to be continually filled with the wind. And that's what Paul is saying here. Be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does that look like? Well, he says what it looks like is singing. Singing from your heart. Sing from your heart, the whole of you. Be filled with songs of praise and sing to one another, he says. The thing is, our worship to God is for God. It's to glorify him. It's to honor him. But it also has this wonderful effect of building each other up. Even as we've sung a couple of songs together this morning, there's a sense of being built up as we sing together, as we sing songs like, wake up, sleep, and rise from the dead, for Christ has shone upon you. And again, this passage of encouragement that Paul gives us here uh, reminds us of why it's so important for us to be together. We have kept on singing throughout lockdown when we've had Zoom prayer meetings and so on. We've usually sung together. But it, it's challenging, isn't it? The, uh, the connection is often a bit crackly and you can feel a bit weird on your own in front of a screen singing. And it's just, it's just not quite the same. It's nothing like the same as being together in a room singing to one another, is it? And over this past year, our mouths have often been stopped. I mean, literally, because we're having to wear face masks and haven't been permitted to sing for so much of the past year. And part of our roadmap back out into normal Christian life has got to be that we learn again to trim our sails, to be filled full of the Holy Spirit, and to sing. And then having said this, the letter seems to make something of a jump in the Bibles we use as a, a break, and the translators have put in a heading, Instructions for Christian Households. And the next verse, verse 21, says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's actually quite an unhelpful place in which the translators have put that break and that heading. Um, actually, the, the, there's one sentence which begins in verse 18 and which verse 21 is part of. So let's read it actually as more as Paul wrote it. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God's the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is part of our being filled with the Spirit and watching our step and making the most of the time that God has given us. Submitting to one another is part of what it means to live a Spirit-filled, a Spirit-empowered life. Christians are empowered to submit to one another. And in giving this instruction, Paul is very much pulling together the, the, the place where he first begins to give practical instructions to, to, to us. You remember the first three chapters of Ephesians, there's no instructions at all. It's all declarations of what God has done and the, the implications of that. It's only when we get to ch chapter 4 of Ephesians that Paul first says, well, you do this now in response. And the first thing he tells us to is to be humble, gentle, and patient. And 
Here he says, submit to one another. It's basically the same thing. What does, the, what does it mean to submit to one another? It means being humble, gentle, patient. Christians defer to one another. We're not to be arrogant to one another. And then the rest of the passage we're looking at this morning really continues that thought. What does it look like to submit to one another? What does it look like to be spirit-empowered, to trim your sails to the uh, breath of God? What does it look like? What does submission in action look like? What does Christian family life look like? Well, here it is. And what Paul writes in these next verses often can seem controversial in our cultural context in the 21st century. Uh, When we read it, often because of our cultural conditioning, our first response can be, well, it seems that what Paul is doing here is encouraging the oppression of women and condoning slavery. And actually, no, what Paul is doing here is describing what spirit-empowered living looks like. And so I'm going to try and unpack that a little bit, and also Grace is going to come and help me in a moment as well. Let's read the passage, beginning at verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, it's one of those strange coincidences that exactly a year ago, I was teaching through uh, Peter's first letter, and we were in a parallel passage to this, the first letter to Peter, where the Apostle Peter writes pretty much exactly the same instructions as Paul does here to the Ephesians. 
And the fact that both the apostles Peter and Paul write the same kind of instructions shows that these are important themes. There is something of a difference, though, between the way that Peter writes and the way that Paul writes, because as you read Peter's letter, and if you were here and remember, we were talking about the theme of how we live as exiles. The, 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 the direction, the emphasis of Peter's instructions are about how a Christian is to conduct themselves when they are dealing with people who aren't believers. How does, an un, how does a, a believing wife live with her unbelieving husband? How does a believing slave conduct themselves in front of their unbelieving master? And really the whole emphasis of Peter's letter is about how our Christian conduct witnesses to the world. The emphasis that Paul gives us here in Ephesians is a bit different because in this passage, Paul seems to be assuming that both husband and wife are believers and both master and slave are believers. And the point that Paul's really helping us to see is how we live as family together. How do you work out family life? How do you work out church life together? As goes the family, so goes the church. And what goes in the church should go in the family as well. If you're a Christian, you're part of a bigger family. You're part of the church. So we're going to start where Paul finishes. I'm going to deal with slavery. Deal with slavery. Just a small subject to deal with. I'm going to spend a couple of minutes, hopefully, trying to open up uh, some understanding of what Paul's saying about slavery here. Obviously, a huge amount more could be said. Now, it always has to be said when when we come across references to slavery in the Scriptures that thinking about how we think. When we think about slavery, we always think about the American South and the Caribbean and the horrors of the West African slave trade. And we've got to see that the cultural context in which Peter and Paul and the other Bible writers were writing was very different from that. In this context, slavery was not race-based. It was an economic reality, but it wasn't based on race. You couldn't identify who was a slave by the color of their skin or the language they spoke or even by the job that they did. It's very different from um, plantations in the Caribbean and and the southern states of of America. Uh, A different kind of economic reality. A slave could be of any skin color and might speak any of the languages of empire and might have any number of different jobs. So most slaves did do very menial, horrible jobs, but some of them would have what we would think of as executive-type jobs and would have earned a salary and had quite a high level of prestige. So we've got to think it's a different model of slavery than the one that we automatically think of. And so probably it's actually more helpful as we read a passage like this to think in terms of employer and employee, although again that's very different from what we would think of in terms of the relationship between employer and employee because there was a radical power imbalance between master and slave, there were none of the contemporary protections that workers would have in our society. There was no health and safety legislation, no unions uh, for the slaves in this context. And of course, the bigger picture we have to think of in terms of the culture that Paul is writing in is it was a much more violent society. The state would routinely use torture, would routinely execute people, And in the workplace, it was completely routine for masters to beat their slaves. That was just normal life at this period of history. And what we see here is that actually, rather than condoning slavery, what Paul's instructions do here is to undermine the whole structure of power and violence upon which the Roman Empire was built. We've got to remember, as we read this, that he is writing to people who are members of the church, 
masters who were Christians, slaves who were Christians who were in church together. And if both masters and slaves are living spirit-empowered, submitted lives, that completely changes the dynamic of their relationship. Think back to what Paul says earlier, verse 21, chapter 5, submit to one another. What does submission look like? It looks like this. That means that in some way, masters have to submit to their workers. And that means that masters are not permitted to treat their slaves as slaves. If you are a Christian master, you cannot beat your slave into obedience. Paul's explicit about that. Do not threaten them. If you're a Christian master, don't threaten your slave. If a Christian master is watching their step, actually abuse would cease to be possible. If you're living a spirit-filled, a spirit-empowered life where you're called to sing songs to and over one another and to submit to one another, there is no way that a Christian master can then abuse their servant. It just becomes impossible. This is one of the reasons why when abuse happens in the church, as sadly it has, and there's been some high profile cases again recently, why that is so particularly abhorrent. Because within the relationship of the church family, it should be impossible for abuse to happen. Because if we're all living spirit-empowered, spirit-filled lives, if we're all submitting to one another, we're showing the respect and love to one another that this passage calls for, then abuse is impossible. And that's why it's so utterly shameful when it does happen. Cuts the other way as, as well, of course, that for a slave, the slave is also to submit to their master, but really the whole dynamic changes. It's no longer that they are working for their master because they have to, it's much more because they get to. It becomes an act of submitting, of worshipping Christ. Master and slave together are family members. And the economic reality is that the master has more capital, has more cash. That's why he's the master. That's why he's got slaves. But there is no more favor for the master than there is for the slave. With God, there is no favoritism. What Paul is describing here is a radical equality, which must have blown the minds of those who first read this letter. We read it, and because of our cultural lenses, we think Paul's condoning slavery. Put yourself into the mind of, a, of, a, of, a, of Christians reading this in the first decades of the first century in the Roman Empire, and Paul's saying, master and slave, equal in the sight of God. Masters are to submit to their slaves and not threaten them, not abuse them. Slaves are to serve their masters because they're serving Jesus. It's revolutionary stuff. Now, having dealt with slavery so comprehensively in five minutes, <laughs> let's get back to marriage. Paul says that the husband is head of the wife as Christ is heads of the church. There is a, a, a right order that Paul is describing here. And we have to see it is a right order. Christ is head of the church, and husbands are called to be heads of their wife. And uh, we can be very wary of this, again, because of our cultural lenses, because we think, oh, this means the dreaded patriarchy. This means men oppressing women, which really isn't what it means at all. Actually, I think part of the issue with this passage is 
not how women read it often, it's how men read it, that often husbands can be rather terrified about being head of their wives. Oh, I couldn't possibly. What does that mean? Men can be rather afraid of this. Don't be. If you're a husband, don't be afraid. It's what God calls you to be, the head in your household. Well, what does that look like? It looks like Christ's headship of the church. And what is Christ's headship of the church like? Well, it's like life. It's like the outpouring of abundant grace. It's freedom. It's empowerment. It's flourishing. It's shalom. That's what Christ's headship of the church means. And so if a husband is called to be head of his wife, that's what that is meant to mean for her as well. It's meant to mean life and grace and freedom and empowerment and flourishing and shalom for her. That's what it's meant to mean. That's what headship is meant to produce. And that's why in the instructions to wives and husbands, the instructions that are given to husbands are about three times as long as the ones given to wives. Because husbands have a particular responsibility. Going to love like Christ, that's a tool order. Now, I do think at this point it might be helpful to have my wife's perspective, so Grace is just going to come and share some of her thoughts on this with us. Okay, so in the week Matt said, um, would you help me talk about submission? And uh, I said no. (laughs) And then I thought, oh, that's a bit ironic, isn't it? Um, Oh, submission. Oh, okay then. Um, So I stand here as someone who feels a bit awkward talking about it, partly because it feels a bit like, well, I don't even know how to describe to you what I think it means. So I spent a bit of time thinking about it, uh, and I started being the good English teacher that I am, thinking about what the word means. And what the word means is actually, I think we sometimes think it means just saying yes to everything and being really good and uh, just doing as you're told. And that's not what it means at all. The word actually means to voluntarily put yourself in a position where you're being helpful. You're putting yourself in a position where you're being helpful. You're just placing yourself where God wants you to be. And that's actually a freeing and a positive thing. So I think sometimes we tend to um, think about submission. You know, um, there's there's a really brilliant, funny, very old film called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. If you've seen it, uh, there's a brilliant line in there where the mum says, uh, yes, the man is the head of the house, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn him any way she likes. And I was thinking, that's a very funny line, but that is not what it is. That is not being manipulative and just saying yes and then just doing your own thing anyway. That is not helpful. And submission is not being in a fight and then because you're the woman just tapping out, going, yep, yep, yep. I I tap out, I'm going to give in to you. That's not what it is either. That's a very negative view, but I think that's just sometimes how we we think about submission. Um, I I wrote my little wheel of submission. I'm just going to read out some things that I said that I think submission is. I think submission is recognising that we, we need help. And actually, if you get married, you, you have decided to join yourself to somebody, and that, that means you're yoked to them, and a lack of submission can just be very, very uncomfortable. It means you're constantly pulling in different directions. And that reminded me of where Jesus says, take upon me my yoke, my burden is light. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And that's what marriage should be like to people pulling together 
in the same direction. And it should be a strong thing. It makes you stronger together. And so there's a kind of element in which you're saying, I am placing myself in a position in this family where I'm going to allow my husband to shepherd me, which means carrying a big stick to protect me if I need it and help me when I need it, and lead us as a family unit. Those are good, positive things that take pressure and weight off my shoulders. It shouldn't be an uncomfortable, chafing thing. It should be a smooth thing. I think another thing that submission needs, which I've learned over 26, 27 years of marriage now, is actually it requires a greater level of openness from me. I have a very, very busy internal monologue that's just going on the whole time. It just never stops. It's just all kinds of stuff going on. And I think I think sometimes I've had a conversation with Matt about how I'm feeling and my concerns and, you know, where I'm going in my walk with with God and and actually I haven't it's just my internal monologue tells me we've had that conversation and we haven't and I think submission means just a greater level of communion together and a greater level of openness if Matt is going to spiritually help me he needs to know what's going on in here and what my hopes and my fears are for my children and how I'm feeling about my job and I think sometimes you know actually marriage is supposed to be a picture of Jesus in the church and if that's true that we do the same thing with Jesus we just keep all kinds of stuff to ourselves, and we forget to go and ask for help and for you know to just to to bring our request before Jesus we should be bringing our hearts thinking to our husbands as well and I think that's something I'm learning I think I would hope I'm learning to do that better doing an excellent job um <laughs> has to say that um but I I think I'm learning to do that better and I'm not I'm very strong independent person but over the years I've learned I need help I need help from Matt. I also need help from my sisters in Christ. I need help from my church family. You can't do the Christian life on your own. It's kind of arrogance and pride that makes us go all independent and trying to do it all on our own. And marriage is, can be a wonderful thing if you're pulling along together. So it requires an openness and it requires trust. And I know that can be tricky, but in a good marriage, trust is absolutely essential. And also, it means that I'm accepting that Matt is giving oversight to me. He's actually an overseer of our family, as well as a shepherd of our family. And he needs to know stuff. If he's going to have a, a good view of what's going on, he needs to know what's going on. And I think when my children were very, very small, and Matt was busy running youth ministry, and I was busy looking after things at home I think sometimes I would just control my little world so he could be free to do his thing and we weren't necessarily pulling along together quite so well but just because I wasn't giving him oversight so that's another thing that I think is shepherding I think it's strength it's humility it requires trust allowing that to have oversight I also think submission is a way of positioning yourself to show love and respect it's just a way of showing love It's saying, I respect your opinion. I respect your shepherding. I I want to know what you think we should be doing. It's actually a way of building relationship and building Matt up according to his needs as well. Um, 
Also, I think submission is really easy if you can get to a place where you acknowledge that your husband is a gift, not a right. Marriage is not a right. It's a gift. And if Matthew is God's gift to me, then submi- and submission is in the word, it must be something really good and rich that's going to bring um, fruitfulness. And it's going to witness something to the world. And it's going to help the world see Jesus. If we're modeling... Um, a kind of shepherding that we see in church in our home that can only help point people to Jesus as well. Um, I think sometimes we we do get a bit um, twitchy about it, but we have to submit in all kinds of circumstances, not just in our own homes. And actually, submitting to Matt is easy for me because we both love Jesus and we're pulling in the same direction. I think it's much harder sometimes to submit in the world, in your job. So just to give you an example, I have line managers in my job. And one of my line managers is, you know, when when he came to take over the department in school, he's quite a bit younger than me. I have more teaching experience. And yet his job is to check in with me and lead me. That's his job. I'm going to make his job really difficult if I always refuse to listen or allow him to come and watch what I'm doing. You know, I can feel a bit like, you don't need to come and see what I'm doing. I've been teaching forever. How dare you? But I'm not like that. I want to make his job easy. It's his responsibility to the head teacher to say that he knows what's going on with me. But that can feel a bit hard because we're, we're not... You know, it's not like we're really close friends. Well, in a marriage, it shouldn't be that kind of awkwardness because it's about friendship and it's about love. Um, I think saying that you're going to submit is a really strong thing. Jesus says that we are created equal in God's sight. If Jesus, who shares equal deity with the Father, can submit to the Father, then we are just doing what God has preordained is the best way for us to rub along together. And it's a strong thing. What you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to stand over here and I'm going to put my hands in your hands and I'm going to allow you to pull me through. I'm not going to try and do it all on my own. So, yeah, I see it as an easy yoke. It's a light burden. But the biggest thing is it's a way of pointing people to Jesus because what we're doing is we're reflecting Jesus's, the triune relationship, really. That's what we're doing. I hope that was clear. And, yeah, that's me done. Thank you, Grace. There's a lot more that could be said about that, obviously. Just but the... Thing to say is that I think even looking around this room, most people in this room are unmarried. There's instructions here to husband and wife, but the instructions are actually to all of us, whether you are married at the moment or whether you are not. And you see that in what Paul is saying. That verse 32, he says, "This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife." Paul is actually most excited. The thing he's most excited about is the marriage between Christ and his people. And all of us who are Christians are part of that marriage. And then Christian marriage is meant to reflect the marriage between Christ and his people. The thing that excites, that Paul's interested in in terms of human marriage is the extent to which it reflects the relationship between Christ and the church. Our human marriages are not the most important thing or the end goal. And if you're unmarried, you are married because you're married to Christ, and that's the most important thing. That's a focus throughout this letter. The people of God, the family of Christ. Last thing, just to finish off, 
finish off the passage is Paul's instructions about parents and children. And uh, it's interesting that he addresses the children directly. He expects the kids to be listening in and paying attention. And those of us who are parents, that's a reminder to us to have not overly low expectations of what our kids are able to hear. says that it's good for children to be obedient, makes life go well for them. It's good for kids to have boundaries. But the corollary to that is there's a sense again, verse 21, chapter 5, in which parents will be submitted to their children. Fathers, head of the house, responsible for setting the tone and carrying the responsibility, but don't exasperate your kids. Don't make your kids angry. Basically, Paul is saying, if you're a dad, don't be a jerk. And I know from personal experience, it's very easy to be a dad and be a jerk. It's very easy to be a jerk as a dad and to exasperate your kids. It happens when we're hypocritical. It happens if we don't treat mum fairly. All the stuff that dads do to anger and exasperate their kids. And Paul says, don't be like that. Don't be that jerk. Instead, train your children in the way of the Lord. Be a submitted man. If you're a dad and you're a Christian, be submitted. Be submitted to Jesus. Be submitted to the brothers and sisters who are part of the church and teach your kids what it means to be submitted as well. All of us who are members of this larger family, all us Christians, are called to live in this spirit-empowered way. The, these, these instructions here in Ephesians can be kind of picked out as practical tips for parenting and marriage, and there's so much more than that. The focus is about the health of the church. The focus is on what it means to be part of this larger family. Each one of us is to watch our step. Each one of us is to trim our sails to the breath of the Spirit. Each one of us is to sing to the Lord and to each other. Each one of us is to submit to each other, to be humble and gentle and patient. And as we do that, we're called to flourish together as the body and bride of Christ being prepared spotless and blameless for him. Let's pray. And then Lorango and Alex will come back and help us to worship again. Father, thank you for this scripture and the truth it contains. And I pray for us. I pray that you would help us. I pray you'd help us as we look ahead to the months to come as hopefully things do return to more normality, that we would learn again what it is to be filled with the Spirit and to sing songs to you and over one another, to build each other up. And I pray that you would help us to live lives of genuine submission, being gentle and humble and patient with one another. Thank you for our destiny and the glory you have shared with us, that we are part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And so I pray that in our human interactions with one another, that we would live in a way which displays and recognizes and speaks to that. That here at Gateway Church, Jesus, we would cause glory to come to your name and good things to come to one another. In your name I ask it. Amen.